This morning, we're starting a series on faith at work and faith at home. And it's one of the thrusts of, of FCC as a discipleship-making church, that it's not confined to what we do on a Sunday. Our discipleship journey is not what happens just in connect groups, but it's actually when the rubber hits the road, when we go out into the marketplace, our workplaces, and, and how we live out those discipleship principles at home. And so this is very much an important plank in, in our teaching series in this season of, of, of just coming out of missions, and then we'll be punctuated with uh, DC in between, so it'll be an awesome time. I'm going to bring out some of these principles about faith and work today, and I'm going to talk about um, being the church in the marketplace, so from the church to the marketplace. And the scripture passage I'm going to base this on is from 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible this morning, or if you've got it on an app, please type in 1 Peter 2, and you should get there. I'm just going to read the word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 11. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Now this passage that we've actually just read in 1 Peter was actually a foundational text in the whole letter. And 1 Peter was a, book that, uh, well, a letter written by Peter to the church scattered. So it wasn't directed to any church in a particular city, but the church wherever they were gathered. And that passage then gets applied in different contexts throughout the rest of 1 Peter, in the context, for example, of how we deal with governmental authority, um, how we live as, as slaves or employees, and how we live in the context of families and husband and wife and family relationships. And today as we start this series of Faith at Work, we're going to talk, as I've said, on the subject, from, the subject of from the church to the marketplace, from the church to the marketplace. And specifically, I want to draw out three things from this passage. We're going to look at, firstly, what it means to be the church. Secondly, how should the church engage in the marketplace? And thirdly, where do we get the power to do this? So firstly, what it means to be the church. Secondly, how should the church engage in the marketplace? And thirdly, where do we get the power to do this? So first, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the church? And in verse 5, 
Peter describes the church as a spiritual house. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the idea here is he uses the word living stones. So it's not a physical house. It's not a physical building that Peter was referring to. The idea here is that living stones, the people of God, are being fitted together, and it means that we're interconnected. We're carrying each other's loads. Uh, when someone hurts, someone else hurts. When someone um, succeeds and, and enjoys victory, someone else celebrates together with them. And, and this is what is saying essentially that the fullness of faith, the fullness of faith can really only be experienced in covenantal community. The fullness of our faith can only be experienced in covenantal community. And when first Peter describes the church, he says, sorry, when Peter describes the church in verse 9, he says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages because I used to apply it uh, as the motto for the worship team um, because it, it looks like a worship team kind of phrase. But, you know, this is not actually what this passage is talking about. And, and what Peter was doing here when he used that terminology to describe the church, he was actually echoing a passage in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, after God had called his people out of Egypt... And he brought them to Sinai where he gave them the law. And he was essentially telling them, this is how you're going to live towards God. And this is how you're going to live towards each other. In Exodus 19, he says this. Uh, Moses says, Moses penned these words, um, which were what, what God said to the people. And in Exodus 19, verse 4 to 6, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt how I carried you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then all out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it is in that context of this covenantal community in Israel that God actually broke forth and showed his glory. And, you know, I've got news for you in, in terms of what we expect today. We tend to think that God's going to break out His glory when we are here in this building, when we are gathered together in prayer meetings. God's going to break out His glory. And, yes, He might do that. But in this context, really, God's going to break out His glory when the church gather in the marketplaces of the world. And it is really interesting that the word that Jesus uses for the word church in the, in the New Testament is actually ecclesia. It has no religious connotations. It has no religious connotations. And in fact, when Jesus used the word ecclesia, when he says, I will build my church, what he really means was to refer to a secular institution. Now, Ed Silvoso says this, during the days when Jesus walked the earth, Ecclesia, the Greek word translated into English as church, was not religious in nature or connotation at all. In fact, by the time he first uttered the word in the Gospel of Matthew, it had been in use for centuries in both the Greek and Roman empires to refer to a secular institution operating in the marketplace in governmental authority. An, an institution operating in a marketplace 
in governmental authority. And he goes on to say that Ecclesia was a buildingless, mobile people movement designed to operate 24-7 in the marketplace for the purpose of having an impact on everyone and everywhere. And so throughout the Roman Empire, when the word Ecclesia was used, it was actually meaning a called-out assembly of men over the age of 18 who would actually gather, and when they gathered, they were actually, if you like, channeling the laws of the empire. So wherever, the, wherever Roman citizens had gathered, even throughout, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, when they were two or three at the least, then it was said that the laws and the protection of Rome was in their midst. It was said that it was as if the, the emperor himself was in their midst. And do you get what this is referring to? When, when Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Do you see the parallel there? And the idea there, when Jesus says, uses the word ecclesia, what he's suggesting is that when the people of God gather, wherever they are, the rule and jurisdiction, the laws of God, the kingdom of God was in their midst, in the marketplace. And so we see this being applied in the book of Acts in the early church. They didn't meet so much in the synagogue. They didn't meet in a, in a so-called church building. But when they gathered, they gathered in their places of trade. They gathered in the city squares. And, and then when they did so, the, the, the presence and the power and the jurisdiction and the rule of God was in their midst. And they were able to turn the society inside out. What a powerful thought. That's what we are as a church today. We're called to be those who bring the laws, the jurisdiction, the power and the presence and the protection of God wherever we, we are. So let's look at how does this play out in the marketplace. How does this extend to our work? How do we engage in the marketplace? Now, for a good deal of my career, um, I'm a lawyer by trade, but I, I always thought that working in the secular world was, was second best. And I know they weren't consciously trying to teach me this, but in, in the church that I grew up in, it was almost as if, if, if you're a good, holy Christian, the idea is you're supposed to become a minister in the church. And so I really, really, growing up, I was very passionate about worship ministry, and so I really wanted to be a worship pastor. And unfortunately, Dave is now in the way, so I can't do that. <laughs> um, no, he's, he's, gonna be, he's a much better worship pastor than I am. And, and also to the relief of my wife, I'm not working in the church, but that's another story. <laughs> but I ended up uh, studying law almost by accident, and then when I started um, working as a lawyer, it was almost like, well, I just got swept into it. Um, I didn't really care about my job, except I liked that it helped me pay the mortgage, and that was a good thing. <laughs> but that was the extent of it. And so for, the, for a very long time, the real ministry for me was actually in the institution of the church. And I loved, I loved uh, Friday night connect groups. I loved Saturday morning prayer meetings. We used to have prayer meetings at 7 a.m., I'm in the morning on a Saturday, and I love, you know, getting ready for Sundays. And so at best, I was very indifferent to my job. 
And probably in the last 10 years ago, I began to appreciate really the high calling of God for each and every one of us, wherever he has placed us in the marketplace, wherever he has called you to, that job is just as important as what the people on the pulpit here do. Amen? Amen. 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 And you know, it's actually an alarming trend. And, and I'm not even talking about church Christians. You know, I'm talking about even in the unchurched. There's an alarming trend, and it's amongst Generation Y and Generation Z, so people probably under 35 years old. The, the, the statistics show that only 14%, only 14% of Gen Y and Gen Z are actually engaged in their work. Meaning this, when they go to work, they don't actually find a sense of purpose or calling. So when they go to work, it's just, well, how do I get by with my job, um, earn a little bit of money, and then I can go on a holiday or I can pursue my hobbies. That's actually a trend in the secular world today. But God, I think, is calling us to be different. God is calling us as Christians to be fully, fully engaged in the marketplace, fully engaged. And so Peter tells us how we should engage, and he says three things. Firstly, he says we're, we're to engage as royalty or as kings and queens. Um, he says we're to engage as priests, and he says we are a holy nation. And so I'm going to unpack those three things for you briefly. So firstly, Peter says you are a royal priesthood, you are royalty. And by this, I want us to understand the dignity of work the dignity of all work. Genesis 1.26 says that when God created humankind in his image, it was to subdue the earth. That was the word he used, to subdue. And to subdue means to have dominion, to rule, to assert God's will. So we're actually called to stand in for God. Now, the Greek philosophers of the day um, in the surrounding cultures around Israel actually saw day-to-day -day menial work as quite demeaning. It was sort of beneath people because they thought that the highest form of existence was, was about the spirit. Sorry, this is around Jesus' time. They, they, saw that, um, they saw that the most important thing was to cultivate the spirit and the mind. And so things like art and philosophy and politics were important and everything else was not so important. And so... The manual work was actually done by slaves, so the elite of society could devote themselves to those higher things. Um, part of this thinking, I think, kind of lives on today in some of our Asian cultures, too, sorry to say. Um, you know, when we have the career discussions with children, we don't say, hmm, you look like you're really gifted to dig drains. <laughs> so maybe you should do that. We always say, well, uh, well, kids, when you grow up, what do you want to be? Well, my suggestion would be doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, maybe. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's probably it. And, and, and so we, we, we don't really think much about being a cleaner or a plumber or a childcare worker, a cook or a gardener, but... In God's economy, those things are equally important. So the Bible actually teaches us that all work is dignified. All work is important. And Old Testament scholar Vince Hamilton said that in the surrounding cultures such as Egypt and Mesopotamia, the kings, the people of royal blood, um, they would be called the image of God. 
they would be called the image of God. But it was never a phrase that you would use for stonemasons or canal diggers. And then he says that in Genesis 1, and I quote, God, uh, God uses royal language to simply describe man. God uses royal language to simply describe man. In God's eyes, all of mankind is royal. And author Philip Jensen says, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? He comes as a carpenter. He comes as a carpenter. And this should give us pause. And all the carpenters in this church say, amen. <laughs> this should give us pause. Knowing that everyone here watching online at the platform or in your homes online, whether you're a lawyer or a truck driver or a house husband, it doesn't matter because our work matters to God. And God wants to use us to bring his rule and reign into this world. So God sees us as royalty. Secondly, he sees us as priests. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest? Well, three things. Firstly, priests bring spiritual sacrifices. Secondly, priests teach the word of God. And thirdly, priests pray and intercede. So firstly, bringing spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And one of my favorite passages, which I often teach the worship team, but I'm now teaching it in a wider context, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And you know, when I first became a Christian, no one had to tell me that giving your life to God meant living a life of passion and sacrifice. No one told me that. So I've told you now, when I first became a Christian at the age of 12, I loved serving God in the church. And over time, I just served really hard in my youth group. Um, I was a youth leader. I served in the worship ministry. I spent all of my free time virtually doing church things. One time I cried because my friends wanted to play basketball and I wanted to go to the baptism service. <laughs> and so after enough crying, they gave in and, and we all rode our bikes to the baptism service. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that living a life of sacrifice means uh, serving God in the church. I think I've made that very clear. But one of the things that God's been challenging me on is, can I take that same mindset of serving God hard in the, in the life of the church, and then what, it, what would it look like if I serve God in that same way in the marketplace, in my society? I have a friend that I actually grew up with in worship ministry, and we used to talk about you know, passionate worship all the time. He was one of my favorite music directors, although I love all of my music directors here. <laughs> but but you know, we, we, we served together for a very long time. And these days, he, he started a business about five years ago, and he's not serving as much in the church, and he's really serving hard with that same passion in the marketplace. And, and just before COVID happened, he rushed into my office and he said, Lester, 
There's a government lockdown happening um, in the, over the weekend. So what I need you to do is draft up some documents for me so I can take it to Indonesia because I've just started a business venture there and I need to get everything signed up. And so I said, what's going on? And he told me that um, just before, maybe a, a month before all of this happened, he had gone to Indonesia and he was doing some business stuff with distribution. And then he went to a high-end massage, so he tells me, and, and expecting fully just to have a, a normal massage, he tells me. And he started talking to the masseuse. And he started asking about her background and about her life. And before long, he realized that even though this was a classy, high-end place, this woman was actually living in sexual servitude. And so he tells me in the middle of a little massage room, half naked in a towel, he felt God speak to him that he had to do something about this problem. And so he came back with that passion to actually start a, a part of his business in Indonesia to rescue women out of sexual servitude. And I thought, man, what an amazing story. It made me want to go for a massage too. But, but, but you know, I thought, could I apply that sort of passion? What sort of faith that was that he was, was bringing to his work? And I was really challenged. Was I prepared to bring spiritual sacrifices for God's glory and for God's purposes in my workplace? Was I prepared to put my time, my status, my money, um, my resources on the line for the sake of my colleagues or for the organization that I work in? Or am I just using work to serve my comfortable middle-class lifestyle? The message translation of Romans 12.1 says, take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Are you prepared to live a lifestyle of sacrifice and you're going to work life towards God as an offering? And, and let me give you another example of this. What does it mean to to bring a sacrifice, well, the sacrifice has to be worthy of the God that we sacrifice to. And if he sacrificed so much for you, and we'll come to this again later on, um, he deserves the best that we can offer. And so at the very, very least, our work, our, our offering of our work to God must be what I would call a ministry of competence. A ministry of competence. And we often forget this. We, we think, oh, we can just do our jobs like half-baked and just okay. But if, if truly we understand that we're bringing a sacrifice to God, not just to our bosses, what does the quality of that look like? It's a ministry of competence. And Dorothy Sayers says, the church's approach, for example, to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. So are you doing your work competently or haphazardly? Are you giving to God the best sacrifice that you can bring. So a priest brings 
spiritual sacrifices. A priest also teaches the word of God. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the priests were charged with teaching the laws of God that had been given through Moses. And you know, today in our workplaces, we actually have the opportunity to do that and to, to model biblical values and to teach the word of God to our colleagues. Some years ago, I had a colleague who was actually spiraling out of control. He was deep in debt and alcoholism. And I wasn't a partner of my firm back then, but I believe that God had given us a common grace, if you like. And the partners then actually said to this colleague, you know, you've been showing up to work late, but I'm not going to, to take away your job. I could terminate your employment, but I want you to promise me you go to rehab and you can keep your job. And it's something that I really respect my partners for doing back then. And so my colleague went to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and it was actually run by a pastor. And as a result of that, he started to seek God a lot more. And one of the things I used to do quite a lot, I used to teach Bible classes. And I, never, I was never secretive about that. So people knew I was doing um, on Sundays and on the weekends. And so as I was talking about this class I was teaching, he overheard me. And at the time, I was really um, gripped by a, a new revelation, if you like, of the grace of God because I was kind of sick of performance Christianity. Um, and there was a lot going on back in those days like that. And as I, re, I was re-energized, if you like, by the grace of God. And so I was teaching eight weeks on my understanding of that. And so he said, well, you're, you're learning new things, you're, you're teaching this, why don't we talk about it? So every lunch, uh, once a week every, at, at lunchtime, uh, me and him would actually sit down over lunch and I'd share with him what I was learning about the grace of God. And, you know, I couldn't say I'm, I'm taking all the credit for that, but I believe that God used me in the marketplace to help shape his spiritual formation and today, you know, he's married to a, a, a lovely Christian girl. He's got two kids, and, and they're actually living for God. They're God-fearing they're God family. And so we have the opportunity that our pastors would never have. How are they going to go into your workplace? Well, that's why Jesus sends us as ambassadors, where we can go into our workplaces, and we can teach and model the Word of God. The third thing that a priest does is prayer and intercession. <coughs> because the, the function of a priest was to offer incense, which in the Bible equates to prayer. Now, uh, I think because often we don't consider our jobs as sacred, we don't actually uh, pray into, it, into our jobs as much as we should. So when a preacher comes up to preach, we always pray for them. When the worship team gets up to play, we always pray for them. When, when the ushering team is about to usher, they pray together. And I wonder how much time do we devote ourselves to praying for our colleagues and our bosses? And I was actually stumbled by this myself because uh, when my partner and I bought into our firm about a year and a half ago, Many of my friends, my close friends here and my, my wife would know that I complained all the time about my staff, all the time. I even send them pictures of, of things that they did wrong. And it was so frustrating. And then one day, my partner, who's also a Christian, said to me, Lester, we haven't really prayed, have we? 
And I went, oh, yeah, mm, yes, yes, we haven't really prayed. And so once a week, we now sit together in my office and we pray, and we pray for every staff member. And do you know what? And people in here that have heard me complain can now attest. In the last six months, they haven't received a text, they haven't heard a phone call from me complaining about my staff. How did that happen? Well, I don't know, but maybe part of it has to do with the fact that we prayed for them. And either God changed them or God changed me. <laughs> so. One day, one of my colleagues said to me that her brother was dying in the hospital of cancer. And the first thing that actually came out of my mouth was I said, well, I'll pray for your brother. And in fact, I'm going to connect group tonight. I'm going to get them to pray for your brother too. And so that night, uh, that afternoon after work, I quickly got a card and went to Connect Group. And I said, this is what's happening to my colleague's brother. Let's pray for him. And not only that, I want us to write down our prayers. And of course, we spent about 20 minutes after Connect Group writing down prayers. And I didn't expect some of the audacity of prayer that was being written down. Like, you know, some Connect Group members would say, you shall live and not die. <laughs> you know, the really faith-filled prayers. And I'm like thinking, mm, I can't wipe this out anymore, can I? So I just took the card as it was and I gave it to my colleague. The next night she took it to the hospital bed and she read out every prayer to her brother. Um, what happened after that? Well, I'd like to tell you that he lived and didn't die, but he actually passed away, sadly. But one of the things that my colleague told me was, you know, right up to the last night, right up to the last night, he, said, he would say to me, can you please get that card and read it to me again? Can you get that card and read it to me again? And I don't know whether he... He crossed the so-called threshold to become a believer, but I believe that what we did actually brought him closer to God. So you might not be ready to live that sacrificial lifestyle, but the least we can do, I believe, is just to pray. Thirdly, Peter says we're a holy nation. We're a holy nation. What does it mean to be a nation? Well, a distinctive of a nation is its culture. That's what makes a nation unique. And so when, when some of us, for example, came from Singapore and Malaysia, you brought the culture of a nation with you. The way you, you raise children, the way you engage um, with your friends, the way you talk, the food you eat, uh, those things are the hallmarks of a nation, and it's not surprising, therefore, why almost every migrant group that comes into a foreign culture experiences culture shock. So, so God is calling us to be a holy nation, to carry a distinct culture, if you like. And Genesis teaches that work involves cultivating the soil, and that's where the word culture comes from. So the question is, how do we engage with the culture around us? And you know, our natural tendency is to actually 
um, think, well, church is a safe place. Um, everyone's very embracive. Um, we all share the same sorts of values, hopefully, and we're kind of uniform. So, so we, we, we like to stay in the church. I just like to be in like, with my connect group all the time because the church is a safe place. Um, the world is seen as a scary, threatening place. So um, we, might, we might not stay away completely, but we don't want to engage fully. And then on the other hand, some of us are, are really zealous, and I commend you for your zealousness, but um, you go in and, and you might even attack the culture and say, you know, that's not how people should be living. That's not how people should be living. And then you become sort of combative and you attack the culture and you say how horrible and corrupt it is. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says his mandate was to seek and save not just the lost, but to save that which was lost. And that's a reference to the redemption of the world's system, that it might reflect God's will and intention. And so like the ecclesia that I was talking about, the church is supposed to bring the, the, the rule of the king, the culture of the kingdom into into wherever we are, into our workplaces, our community, our city. And, you know, the culture of the kingdom is a different one. It was meant to be different. Um, and, and it's not, for example, so easy to fit it into the, the, the culture of the world. It's, it's not a liberal culture. It's not a conservative culture. You know, the early church actually experienced this. And there are a few things that the early church did, like they, they avoided going to the gladiator events and the blood sports. They were against sex and relation, sex outside of marriage. They were against same-sex practices, which were actually being practiced in the society around them. Uh, they were against abortion and infanticide because whilst everyone else said it was okay to kill the baby if you didn't like uh, what you got, uh, the church was actually against that. And they believed that Jesus was the only way uh, to salvation when, when the Greek and Roman society had lots of gods. And so, in many ways, the church was actually seen, even today, for example, as being politically incorrect, right? We hear that a lot. We're, we're politically incorrect. We're, we're very backwards and regressive. And yet, the church in those days, and I would submit to you the church today, we, we often do things differently. In those days, the, the, against society's norm, the, the early church actually empowered women in leadership. When, when women were, were considered second class, they were racially inclusive when, when in those days everyone lived in separate races and clusters. They, they, they mixed people and races and classes in their meetings that would shock the society around them. Um, they practiced radical forgiveness when around them people were saying, well, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They had a deep care for the poor, a deep care for the poor, even when the Greeks were saying that, you know, the poor were, that was their lot in life. Let's not do anything about it. And yet the church deep, cared deeply for the poor. And if you put that template into today's society, the church might actually be considered very progressive, very liberal, very enlightened, and so the truth is, the church actually offends everybody. <laughs> the church offends everybody. And that's why um, Peter says in verse 11 that we're actually aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. And other, and other translations that we are resident aliens, meaning 
we're not of this world, but we're in this world, and we participate in this world. We're unalienated aliens. And when we live in this society, we know that culture doesn't fit, but we neither withdraw, neither do we attack. We come in close, and we serve. Amen? And Peter actually says, you'll suffer for this. Uh, maybe you won't be in prison or tortured, um, but you are going to get criticized. Um, you might suffer materially. You might lose out on, on a promotion because people think you're strange. Um, you might miss out on a career opportunity. So he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, you will be accused of doing wrong. And yet, Peter says, the pagans will see your good deeds and glorify God. What an amazing contrast. You know, when I've been very open about the fact that I'm a Christian in the workplace, and one of my colleagues actually criticized me to no end. He couldn't get the idea of why I would go to a church and spend Sundays stuck in here when I could be going to the park and, well, I guess exercising, maybe I should be doing some of that. But, <laughs> you know, enjoying the fresh air. He couldn't understand why I actually uh, tithe. He actually thought that was strange. Like, couldn't you be doing something better with your money? Don't you want to pay off your mortgage? And so he laid it on thick. And every time I talk to him about church, he always comes to those two things. And yet, one day... He had a client referred to him, and this client was an institutional child abuse victim. And he said, well, we don't have capacity to do that sort of work. We, we never did pro bono in our firm. But he said to me, Lester, you, you're a do-gooder, aren't you? And you want to do good things? I went, yeah, I suppose. What is it? And he says, do you want to take on this client pro bono, meaning at no charge? And I gladly did. And, you know, the work we did um, probably cost the firm about $10,000. Um, but it actually gave dignity to this child abuse victim. And so that be began the start of what our firm's journey is on right now towards doing a bit more of that community work to give access, just, uh, access to justice for those who can't afford it. Um, and now we've got a pro bono policy in place. We're actually uh, putting a lawyer once a week in the platform to, to help some of the not-for-profits there. And, and so they will both vilify you and they will also recognize you. They will, they will accuse you of doing wrong and yet they will see your good deeds and, see, and, and glorify your Father in heaven. And you know, I want to ask what unique gifts that you have today that you can also serve God in the marketplace with. So, my last point. Where do we get the power to do this? And we come back to the start of this passage in verse 4. Where Peter says, we come to Jesus, the living stone who was rejected by humans, yet chosen by God and precious. How do we do this? Well, we align with Jesus. We unite with him. Verse 7 says that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. What does that mean? Well, it means that everyone, everywhere is building. They're building their life on something. And the cornerstone is the most important part of the building. If, you, if your cornerstone has wrong angles on it, the whole building will be crooked. If your cornerstone is shaky, your whole building will be shaky. 
And so what Peter is saying is we need to get our cornerstone right. We need to align with the right cornerstone. So the question is, what are you building in your life and what are you building on? Is it business success? Because if we are building just on business success, we know that all it takes is an unexpected economic turn like we are having now in a pandemic where, where businesses can just get destroyed in a, in a whim. Is it money or material wealth? Well, we know that those who chase wealth will never be satisfied. You'll keep wanting more and more and more, and the pursuit of wealth becomes its own God. Is it prestige and achievement? You know, think about the athlete who builds their entire identity on being an athlete. What happens when they retire? Their life falls apart. Is it friends or family? Because even those people can take you for granted. Even worse, they can even turn against you. But verse 6 says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If we trust in Jesus, if we come to him as our cornerstone, if we see him as precious, we will never be put to shame. That's what I'm going to build my life on. What does it mean to see Jesus as precious? Well, it means that's what I'm prepared to give my life to. It is so important to me that I'm prepared to give my life to him. We see him as precious, how? When we actually see how precious we are to him. When we see how precious we are to him. You see, Jesus was the king of eternity. He was the ruler of heaven. And yet Philippians 2 says that he gave all of that up to take the form of a servant, to serve you, to serve me, to give his life up for us. This, almost that word, it's almost like he took the form of an employee when he was the boss. Jesus was the eternal, perfect high priest. He was the perfect high priest. There was no one like him in all the priesthood of Israel. He was the one who was before all of it. And he was sinless and unblemished, and yet he sacrificed himself for us to pay for our sins. Hebrews 9 says, How much more will the blood of Christ who offered himself unblemished to God cleanse us from acts that lead to death so that we may live and serve the living God? And even though Jesus was the high king of heaven, he was the high priest of heaven, he was also the rejected one. The Bible says he came to his own and they rejected him. His people rejected him and gave him over to be crucified. His family rejected him. At the end of his life, his friends rejected him. And on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was, was the ultimate foreigner, the ultimate alien, and yet he was an unalienated alien. He didn't just assimilate and he didn't withdraw. And even though the people hurled insults at him, they, they, they crucified him, they tortured him, and yet he came close. He came close to lay his life down and he pushed right through to the end for the joy set before him. Why did he do that? It's because we, because we were precious to him. 
And if we know that we are loved like this, if we know that we're loved like this, how much more now can we learn to love the people around us? How much more can we now learn to love our neighbors, our workplaces, our communities? We can love even when we're misunderstood, we're criticized, we're persecuted for living out the truth of the gospel. You know, our truth might seem exclusive. It might seem strange to the world. But if that truth is that a man died for his enemies, that he served those who didn't deserve it, that he suffered and he didn't retaliate, he was attacking and he was not attacking, he was not assimilating, but he came close and he took suffering graciously, that's the kind of truth? Well, the early, the early church took that truth and they were able to change the world and the society all around them, not only in their generation, but for generations to come after. So if we live for Jesus in our workplaces and our communities, these things can be transformed. And one day, as the Bible says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ forever. May we be his ecclesia to see the culture of the kingdom established in our workplaces, in our city, in our communities, as we move from the church to the marketplace. Amen. Uh, this morning, I want to give an opportunity to those who are watching online at the platform, even in this room, you, you might not have committed yourself to Jesus um, ever before, and you might not have heard about a Jesus like this, a rejected king who came close to serve, to give his life for us. And you might go, that's a wild thought. What kind of God is this? And you might not have ever encountered or heard about a God like this. I want to give you the opportunity to respond. And I'm not asking anybody to um, move out of their seats if you're here. Um, but if you're here and you want to respond to this, then I would encourage you at the end of the service, you can just go out to the Connect Lounge to your left and you can tell somebody. Or better still, just turn around to the person next to you who brought you here and tell them about it. Or you can even, if you're online, you can just type in something. I'm not sure exactly what, but there'll be online uh, people to help you uh, to work through that decision. And so if you want to make that decision, we're going to quickly uh, pray a, a quick prayer that says that, you know, we have essentially sinned against God. We have walked away from his principles and precepts. But today we want to go back to him and we want to commit our lives to him. We want to declare that he has, has saved us from our sins, and now we want to live for him. So if you are ready to make that prayer, I just want to encourage you um, right where you are just to repeat after me. And church, if you are in this room, um, it never hurts to recommit. So I want to encourage you to um, pray this out loud with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I thank you that you are the unalienated alien, that you came close to serve me, and you gave your life for me. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. And so today I want to live for you. I want to make you the cornerstone of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, please reach out to somebody and someone will, um, will, come, will give you some more information about how to keep living that life. 
And lastly, I want to pray for those of you who are feeling some challenges in the marketplace um, because we're in a difficult season. So if you could stand with me right now if you're in the auditorium. If you could just stand with me in the auditorium. And you want, you're feeling the challenges of what it means to actually go out into the marketplace and live for God. Um, maybe you're suffering persecution in one form or another or some criticism from, from the colleagues around you about the way you choose to live. Um, and and you, you need that strength and energy from the Lord. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to uh, lift up your hands in a posture of receiving, and we're going to pray. Father God, we thank you that you're moving us as a church from the four walls of this building, from our communities and our connect groups to to our workplaces, wherever you have placed us. This morning, God, we thank you for the example that you gave of what it means to serve the community. And so, Father, whatever challenges we face, we pray that you'll give us strength, that you will enable us to, to go beyond what we're feeling. Lord, when we are persecuted, we draw comfort from you. When people are criticizing us, we, we look at you as our example of what it means to be a resident alien in this world, to serve even in the midst of of, of hardship. Father, we pray that we'll be a people committed to the marketplace and the transformation of the marketplaces around us. God, we don't want you to just see your glory break out in the church on a Sunday. Father, our desire is your glory to come in our places, in our workplaces, in our cities, wherever you have planted us, that, that though they criticize us, Lord, many will see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. God, we thank you, Father, that you are going to take us to places that our pastors can never go. Lord, that we might take the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, that we might bring the principles of the kingdom, that we might intercede on behalf of our workplaces, oh God. And Lord, that we might see transformation happen. Father, we declare according to your word, let your kingdom come. Let the culture of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Send revival and the power and your presence and your jurisdiction, oh God, everywhere that we gather, oh God, that the church will be known in the city of Perth, that we will bring good and we'll bring transformation and we will bring prosperity to our city in Jesus' In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Come on, let's sing this together. <laughs>